I would ask you this morning, I know it's often our habit to put our Bibles away. I would ask you this morning to keep your Bibles on your laps or somewhere near and keep them open. We will be referring to them often and there will be many times where I would say, look at this, look at that. So I encourage you, it's also a good practice. Keep your Bibles open. Uh, you do want to make sure that your minister is preaching from the Word of God after all. Uh, Revelation chapter 4. We have, with God's help, considered the first three chapters of Revelation, wherein the risen, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ communicated a series of visions to an angel, who then communicated these visions to the beloved Apostle John, who was then commissioned to communicate these things to the churches of Asia Minor and for the church of all time. As you know, there were seven churches in Asia Minor, seven being the number of completeness or number of wholeness. We have examined their commendations, the churches. Commendations for faithfulness to Christ in their witness. We have examined the rebukes from Christ for their compromise in the midst of pressure to worship the beast or to uh, compromise by worshiping false gods. We've also considered the promises that our Christ gives to all of those who endure and who overcome in Him. And now, we come to the fourth and fifth chapters of the letter of Revelation. Most, when you are hearing people preach these chapters, they will couple them together, fourth and fifth chapters, because uh, what John is receiving is a new vision, but it's also a vision symbolically of heaven. I just use the word symbolically. Very important. It's a chapter 4 and 5. They are a vision symbolically of heaven. They are a vision symbolically of the glory of heaven. What John now sees, here's an important word, echoes. Uh, Echo meaning it calls back to. uh, It has a carrying on effect of scripture that we have heard and seen before, specifically these, Daniel 7, Ezekiel 1, Isaiah 6, and many more from the Old Testament, especially from the book of Exodus. These are what John is is describing this morning for us. They are echoes, they are carrying on effects from those previous passages. Uh, You will remember when we began our journey through the Apocalypse of John, we noted that in order to have a good grasp of Revelation, you needed to have a good grasp of the Old Testament. Or else you would be thinking that everything that we see here in Revelation is out of nowhere something new. Rather, they have been said before, they have been uh, told to us before in different manners, in different ways, but with great similarity. It's important for us to have a good grasp, or at least a good understanding, a good awareness of the Old Testament, if we are to understand anything about the letter of Revelation. It has been said that Revelation is a type of divine commentary, not just on the Old Testament, but on the whole of Scripture, old and new itself. It's a type of summary of all of sacred Scripture, if you will. What is the summary 
of the whole of sacred scripture. Summarize all of scripture. What is it? Someone were to come to you and ask, tell me, what is the main point of the word of God? What would you say? Think about this. Of just the three chapters that you have heard in Revelation, what would you say thus far? Hearing the three chapters that you have heard, what would you say thus far is the message? What's the message thus far of Revelation? Three chapters you've heard. The message so far, I believe, is the triune God rules over all creation. Christ, the eternal Son of God, is the faithful and true witness. He was alive, was dead, and is now the firstborn from the dead with his resurrection. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And by his resurrection, he has inaugurated a new creation, wherein he is the firstborn again. Again. And he has promised to all who place their faith in him and remain faithful unto death that he will grant them white garments, royal crowns, and a place with him on the royal throne in the new creation. Thus far, in these three chapters, I would say that's at least what I have summarized as being the point so far. And I think that will be a continual point as we get all the way to the end. These chapters... Before us, these two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, they, they double down. They double down on the precious promises from our glorified Christ. They communicate to the church great encouragement as they are allowed a glimpse of these symbolic visions, as they are allowed to, to, to peer into the sheer wonder of God and all of the promises that He has gives, that He gives, and, and they can believe this. That God's promises can be trusted. John does not intend for us, as we're reading and as we've just read chapter 4, John does not intend for us to understand this chapter literally. Very important. We're still holding on to this hermeneutical principle here in Revelation, which is what? In in, in apocalyptic literature... Symbolic language is used. Language is used. It's given to us in word pictures. Pictures that that are being described by words that that are communicating spiritual realities, but that lie behind images. Images that are intending to communicate the redemptive purposes of God in all of history. And his ultimate glory. You have to get that. If we're reading through Revelation and going literally here, literally there, literally here, you're missing the point. There's a truth behind the image, but don't take the image as being the thing that you hold on to. Rather, take what the image is communicating as being the thing that you hold on to. In chapters 4 and 5, we have, uh, there are 14 elements. Fourteen of them, just in these chapters, that are drawn from Daniel chapter 7. When you go to Daniel chapter 7, you'll see 14 similarities. Daniel's prophecy of the Son of Man in the Ancient of Days. I will leave you to your own time of study to find out what those 14 are. I could give them to you all, but it's a good homework assignment for you, isn't it? While you're doing that, also go to Exodus. While you're doing that, also go to Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6 to find out more of these similarities that you see. I hope you wrote those down. Isaiah, 
6, Ezekiel 1, and Exodus. Now, what similarities do these prophets of the Old Testament and those whom they were speaking to, their audience, and and these here in the New Testament, the, the seven churches of Asia Minor, what do they have in common? Here's my, my, my point. Why are there similarities? Why is what John is saying to the churches in Asia similar to what Ezekiel said to his audience? And similar to what Isaiah said to his audience? And similar to what Moses said to his audience? Or what the people in Moses' time experienced? Why are there similarities? There are similarities because, just like the seven churches in Asia Minor, those who were in the audience of Isaiah, those who were in the audience of Ezekiel, those of the children of Israel in the times of Moses during the Exodus, they were being pressured to bow down and worship false gods. They were being opposed. They were being persecuted. They were being even commanded, worship the beast. Beast will always be the false god. They were being per pressured to forsake their commitment to Yahweh and turn to gods who do not speak. Turn to gods who do not live, for they are not gods. And to the saints of old, God calls His messengers. God gave them similar visions of the sovereignty of Him over all human events, over all of human history, over all creation. He gives to these prophets of old a, a vision of the glory of heaven. A vision of the, the, the absolute rulership of God. And an encouragement to be faithful. Similarly, Christ addressed the seven churches in the midst of tribulation. Christ reminds them that He walks among them. Christ reminds them that He is purifying His bride even in the midst of her trial. Even in the midst of her fiery trial, she is being purified. She is being readied for glory. And He is ruling even over those purification processes. He's ruling and reigning over all of history. Christ gives His church a glimpse into the glory of God in heaven. I asked Pastor Isaiah to make sure that I was uh, accurate. It's, It's going to be a shadow of the beatific vision. Not actually the beatific vision. I, I, I was sitting there thinking about it while we were singing. We will all at once, I think, receive this beatific vision. It's a, it's a consummate vision that we all receive at the same time, but they are receiving a shadow of what we will all receive. Uh, let me say to you, even as, as we are preparing to, to go into verse 1 in a few moments, I am completely out of my depths. Reading through this fourth chapter not even yet going into the fifth, almost afraid to put my hands on the keyboard. What do I say? How am I going to communicate the the absolute awe and the wonder that is being communicated to us here? I am completely out of my depths. I was saying to my wife last night, when we get to the end of the the verses, uh, verses 8 through 11, I don't even know what to say. Worship God. Let's just bow and worship Him. So this morning, if we're, if we're coming to, to just kind of hear a commentary on Revelation, throw that out of the window. 
our response should be the same as those who, when we come to the end of this chapter, who fall down and worship the one enthroned in heaven. I'll say it to you now, so that when we get to the end, you you don't have to wonder, what's the point of it? That's the point of it all. Your pastor is out of his depths. Those who are standing before the throne, they are out of their depths. Our only appropriate response, not only to this sermon, but to every single sermon should be, worship the one enthroned. That's the encouragement. The encouragement to the seven churches of Asia, to the encouragement to all the church for all time, is this, no matter how things look here on earth, God is ruling and reigning over everything. These prophetic visions are, are, are to be examined so that we might hold fast to the message that is intended for the church of all time. And that is simply, again, God reigns. God is enthroned over all creation. Do not lose sight of His majesty. In spite of whatever is going on here, uh, whatever trials you face, whatever opposition comes your way, uh, whatever bad days you have, Whatever illnesses and sicknesses you are experiencing, God rules and reigns over all. John's vision of the one sitting on the throne and of the Lamb is given to the church that we might see, here, here, the supreme worthiness of God alone. That we might be moved to awe in Him alone. Pastor Isaiah, this morning, and I do encourage you all, uh, for Sabbath school, was, was talking about how we have been created, and, and God gives us these, these commands, and God saves us so that we might be elevated, not just in our personhood, not, not just in, in our, uh, in our created state, but, but so that in our created state, we might be elevated to see that our true happiness is found in Christ. Our true satisfaction is found in Christ. And what sin does is it makes you say, no, no, no. You can find satisfaction in, in other places. But, but it's not an elevation of happiness. It's, it's a declination of happiness. Sin gives you the, the false hope and false promise that you will be happy in it. But rather, sin does the, the exact opposite. It gives you a momentary pleasure, but ultimately leads to a declining in happiness. Because none of us are ever satisfied when we sin, are we? We are always shamed when we sin. We always say, that didn't do what for me what I thought it was going to do. It, it promised me something other than what it gave me. But in Christ, there's an elevation of happiness. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's an inclination of joy. As we're coming to this fourth chapter, we've seen the church opposed in these first three chapters, haven't we? Chapters two and three. We've seen them opposed and, and what the world is is opposing them and pressuring them to do is capitulate. Worship the false gods. If you do, you will be ultimately satisfied because you will earthly prosper. It's promising them the same thing that Satan promised in the garden. If you want ultimate pleasure, then do the opposite of what God is commanding. And what Christ is promising and telling His church is, no, you will decline in your happiness. And let me give you a vision of how much greater your happiness will be into chapter 4. You want to see what lies ahead of you if you remain faithful 
not the riches of Laodicea, the riches of the glory of heaven. If you remain faithful, here is what lies ahead. Here's, here's a vision, a taste, a shadow of what lies ahead if you remain faithful to the faithful and true one. Let's, let's begin before I don't get into any of this. Number one, the phrase, after these things, this is going to be a short point, but I think it's an important one. After these things, this is verse one, and look at it, please. Your Bible says, should say, after these things, I looked. In Daniel 7 and in Ezekiel 1, their introduction to the visions begin with the same phrase. It is, Daniel will say, Ezekiel will say, after these things I saw and behold. The phrase is simply meant to indicate that John is receiving, this is important, very important. John is receiving a new vision. It's a new vision. Revelation 1 through 3 is, if you will, one set of visions. And now Revelation 4 through 5 is, again, another set of visions or another vision. You will remember that the phrase, after these things, is synonymous. Meaning, they mean the same thing as Daniel's phrase, in the last days. So if you're taking notes... Uh, after these things means the same as in the last days. The way that Daniel says it. Daniel says, in the last days, and John says, in these days, which are the last days. Daniel's looking forward to it. John is saying, we are in it. After these things, in the last days. And they are generally meant to communicate the eschatological scope for the church. Basically, the, the visions are, are being communicated because they are concerned with explaining last things. Now, last things are realized in one sense and unrealized in another sense. Realized in one sense, unrealized in another, in another sense. Realized... In the sense that by the resurrection of Christ, the last days have been set into motion. We are living in the last days. Unrealized in the sense that they are not yet consummated. Or that Christ has not yet come. So, we are in the last days in that by the resurrection of Christ, the last days have been have begun. They are not yet complete though because Christ has not yet come. In this new vision, John sees, if you look at your scriptures, John sees and says, Behold, a door open. A door open in heaven. Now, is there a literal door? The answer is no. There is not a little literal door. It is interesting, though, that for the last two chapters, the attention has been on what the church, I'm going to use these phrases, what the church militant that is the church that has been wrestling against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the church penitent. That's another. The church penitent. That is suffering and expectant. The attention has been on what the church has been experiencing here on earth. The church has been encouraged to hold fast to Christ as we are waiting the return of Christ, which is called the, tri- the church triumphant. Now, in these next two chapters, God shifts his attention from 
earth to heaven. There's, there's a, a shift in scope, a shift in attention. As the church experiences tribulation, what's taking, what's going on in heaven? Yeah, God is pulling back the curtain, if you will. For those who ask the question, is God aware? For those who ask the question, does God even care? The Lord calls our brother John to have a closer look. That, that invitation to come is in a sense the open door. The invitation to see is in a sense the open door that God gives to John. John says, after these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Uh, Look at your scriptures. And the first voice, hear that? The first voice which I heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. From the 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 open door, as it were, John hears a voice and it's the voice. Tell me if you've heard this before. It's the voice that sounds like a trumpet. Where we've heard that before. The, the voice of one like a trumpet. It's a familiar voice, isn't it? John heard that same trumpet like voice in chapter one. Revelation one ten. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice. And John describes it. He says, like, like the sound of a trumpet. Well, John recognizes that voice. And, and so, so should we. It is the voice of the risen Lord of glory. Uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. John describes the voice. And listen to the, the way he says it. Like, I, I think in these, in all of Revelation, uh, those who grew up in the, the 90s and the younger kids, they probably would love reading Revelation because it says like more than a thousand times. Like, 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 you know, when you hear young people talk, they, get, they, they always use the word like. Well, well, John is using the word like so many times. And it is because it's not exactly, but it's meant to communicate something similar to without it being exactly like. Why is it described as a trumpet? Well, because a trumpet was used when one of royalty was approaching. When you were in the presence of royalty, a trumpet was announced. It was uh, hearkened so that you might stand to attention and pay homage to the one who speaks. John says, the king speaks. We know that as being... The sound of a trumpet. Was it really? Uh, is, is, does the voice of Jesus, is it literally a trumpet? Again, no. It's meant to communicate or symbolize royalty. Now, just as <clears throat> Isaiah and Ezekiel received divine entrance into the Lord's holy place, so John is summoned to enter into the council chamber of the King of Kings so that he might see symbolically the plans and purposes of God and thereby encourage God's people. The Lord says, come up here and I will show you these things, show you what must take place after these things. Again, very important. It's important to note what this phrase after these things does not mean. There are some who would espouse the first three chapters are the history of the church. And phrases like, after these things, 
sound of a trumpet and come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things that all of these phrases are intending to communicate rapture language. Rapture language. Those who hold to this belief see chapters 4 and 5 as what the church is experiencing as they have been raptured away into heaven while on the earth. Great woe. Great tribulation takes place. So that what we see for the rest of this letter describes what those who are left on earth are experiencing after 4 and 5. They believe that 4 and (coughs) 5 is telling us what we will experience when we are uh, taken away from trouble while the earth and while the seals are open and while these horsemen come and wreak havoc on the earth. We won't be here. That's a false view. In their opinion, the church will not experience or take part in any of this great tribulation because they believe the church won't be here. We'll be in heaven. I believe the scriptures are communicating something different, though. It's important to note that contrary to this, this belief is called pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, What I just uh, explained to you is a very brief and kind of uh, kindergarten explanation of pre-tribulation rapture. It's important to note, John never says the church was translated or in the spirit, raptured at this point. He only says he was in the spirit. That he received certain visions. He doesn't speak anything about the church. Your Bibles are in front of you. You can examine for yourself if I'm telling the truth. The preceding chapters will speak of the church also in many different ways. As she is fighting against the evils of the one who comes against her. From this point forward, all of these tribulations are being experienced by the church. And here's an important question. If the church wasn't experiencing these tribulations, then what's the purpose of the rest of the book for us? If we are going to be in heaven, then the book should end for us in chapter 5. The letter is written for the comfort of the church in the midst of tribulation. Why do I need to know about chapters 6 through 22? 20. If I'm not even going to be here, why do I care? Someone may say, well, I just want you to know what's going to happen for those who are left on the earth. I don't care. I won't be here. That's their problem. Someone say, well, it's a good way for you to witness to them so that they don't, they don't have to experience the things that, that are going on on the earth. Now, let me say, if the understanding of the gospel, if the understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ is not enough to call someone into faith in Christ, then neither will be the fear of experiencing so-called danger and tribulation on the earth. And you'll be here to experience it. If you don't turn to Christ, it won't be enough. Uh, Just like what Jesus said to the rich men who said, go and tell my brothers. Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they won't believe if somebody comes back from the dead. 
You don't scare people into the kingdom by saying, look what's going to happen. You don't want to be here. I'm already here. I'm already experiencing enough trouble as it is. What's a little bit more? <laughs> no. This idea that the church will not be here is false. We are here. And just so that you know, we are in the tribulation. What we are experiencing now is the tribulation. Christ, when He returns, will end and consummate all things. Now, the Lord says to John, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. In the last days, all that takes place in these days, from the time that Christ rose till now, all that takes place is ordered by the Sovereign Lord. From the throne of heaven, God rules and reigns over all things. I'm going to say that maybe a hundred times in this sermon. All things have been orchestrated by God. The Lord commissions John to write so that we might be encouraged. So that we might see that even what happens here on earth is being ordered from heaven. Now let's go to our second point, which is a longer point. Last point is very short. The throne in heaven. The throne in heaven. This is going to be verses 2 through 7. But don't put your Bible away. John, once again, like in chapter 1, when he hears the call from the Lord, is translated in the Spirit. John is spiritually raptured, like the prophets Ezekiel and Daniel, into Yahweh's secret council in heaven. It's important to note that John is not literally taken to have, into heaven. His body is not taken literally into heaven, but John, in a supernatural way, was translated by the Spirit into the glory of heaven to receive the visions that he is receiving. One theologian has said he has been ushered into the timeless dimension where truth and reality can be clearly discerned. But since this dimension, heaven, that it is, is timeless, what John sees cannot necessarily be ordered chronologically. Remember, what John has been receiving is being reduced to him for his understanding. It's, it's being, uh, uh, God is, is lisping to him, if you will. He's, he's stooping down low to speak to John in a way that John can comprehend. He's receiving symbols that are mixed with elements of the past and the present and the future. So when we read Revelation and we go, okay, chapter 1, and then chapters 2 and 3, oh, and then chapter 4 and 5, and then after chapter 4 and 5, we'll come 6 and 7, and then we begin to order a redemptive history chronologically. We can't do that with Revelation. Here's why. Because Revelation is a book of recapitulation. Meaning this. Revelation, I'll break that down. Revelation will give a vision, say something else, and then give the same vision again later. But do it from a different vantage point. So that if you're saying, okay, here's the order of Revelation chronologically, you can't do it. Because John's not allowing, God is not allowing John to see things chronologically. God is saying to John, I'm going to show it to you from this vantage point. God is ruling. Then God takes him to another vantage point and says, now I'm going to show you from this vantage point. God is ruling. Then God says, now I'm going to show you from this vantage point. But God is ruling. So that if we try to say, here's the order of it, we won't be able to do it because it's not the intention of the book. 
These visions will be told and retold from different angles, different vantage points, so that what we read cannot and must not be understood as being chronological. Now, John is translated into the royal chambers of God. And, and there before him is a throne standing, or as uh, Daniel says, set up in heaven. Seventeen times the word throne is used in the next two chapters. For what purpose? Imagine, you're the church in Pergamum. And in the church of Pergamum, Christ says to them repeatedly, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And now this fourth chapter, you read repeatedly, the throne in heaven, the throne in heaven. Those in Pergamum are being encouraged to know that there is a throne in heaven. And the one who sits upon it rules over all thrones. The the throne that Satan sits upon is nothing compared to the one who sits upon the throne of thrones. It's for their encouragement. Uh, G.B. Caird said, To those who live under the shadow of Caesar's throne and find that that shadow made darker by the shadow of Satan's throne, the one truth that matters above all is that there is one greater throne above all thrones. The Lord allows John to see that although this realm of God is separated from earth, it doesn't negate the fact that God rules from heaven over all of the earth. Heaven is his throne, you've heard. Earth is his footstool. Regardless of the evil that may be here on the earth, from, from our perspective, that seems to run rampant. That, that is, is, isn't there someone who can bring some kind of calm and peace to this chaos? God allows John to see that, that it is an, in fact God who is superintending all things for his glory. That nothing comes past God. That God did not intend to come past him. Uh, there's not something that's stuck by, by God and God's, well, how'd you get past me? <laughs> Where did you come from? God superintends all things. He's ordered and ordained whatsoever comes to pass. All things for His glory. John says that when he's translated into heaven, he's given a vision first of the throne and then of the ruler who sits upon that throne. John doesn't see his face, though. You notice that? John doesn't say he has... uh, Long blonde hair, as some false teachers have said. He's, he's about six foot tall. He's got uh, baby blue eyes. They're piercing. Nor does he take it to the other. Uh, he's got an afro. Uh, he's got a good long beard uh, that's, that's thick and full. His skin is, is dark like mahogany. No. God is a spirit, as our confession says. He does not have a body like man. Not only this, but it is impossible for anyone to see God and live. What John sees then begins, begins to, it's symbolic in the way that he describes God because he's receiving symbols of what God is. Notice John's description. Look there in, in verses, uh, in verses two and onward, three, verse three. What John sees, the, the vision that John sees, it's a restrained vision. 
It offers nothing that can be turned into a forbidden image. Nothing. Even, even in his attempts to describe, verse 3, he says, he was, who was sitting on it, was like, there's that word again, like, like Jasper. So if someone were to uh, take Jasper and wrap it around their neck and say, this is God, John would say, you, that's foolish because Jasper is just an attempt for me to explain something like, but it's not exactly like. John says, Jasper, Sardius in appearance. And there's a rainbow around the throne. And he goes again, like an emerald in appearance. Emerald is green. In John's vision, the one enthroned has no physical features like a man. God, God is not cobbled together with body parts like a man. Rather, John receives, listen to this, and he conveys only color. Texture. Brilliance. Not a face, not, not a height, not a width, not a length. Color. Texture. Brilliance. And, and, and John, in his finite way, with limited language, attempts to, inspired by the Holy Spirit, convey what he sees. John was out of his depths. We, this morning, we are out of our depths. John even says, he's sitting, and, and what I see is something, it's, it's like a rainbow around the throne. John can't even find the words. But, but it's interesting that what John says accords with what Ezekiel says. In their vision as well. Both identify the stone of Jasper. But both are saying Jasper is not the stone that God is, but it's the closest in, in my finite understanding of my way of explaining what I see. Jasper. If you've never seen Jasper, look up clear Jasper when you Google it. Not now. It, it, it looks like crystal. Uh, Ezekiel will say, it looks like clear ice. What I'm seeing is clear ice. Jasper is the first stone mentioned, and it will be the first stone of the 12 precious foundation stones of the end-time city wall mentioned in Revelation 21. Jasper is meant to communicate what? Glory. Radiance. Brilliance. Weightiness. It's meant to communicate glory. Sardius. Also known as Carnelian, it's a reddish stone that appears also among the twelve foundation stones in the New Jerusalem in, in Revelation twenty-two. And these stones are meant to to simply intensify. You, you put light through clear ice. You put light through uh, uh, crystal, and, and it it begins to to intensify the brilliance of of that light. There's a light around the throne of. Of God that, that is reflecting an unapproachable brightness. Where does God live? Scriptures say that God dwells in unapproachable light. Glory surrounding God. And then what is more that, that John sees an emerald green. 
We've got this, this Sardis red. We've got this clear ice. And now there's this emerald. If you can imagine what an emerald looks like. My dad and I used to go to little uh, to Chinatown in San Francisco. And emeralds everywhere. <laughs> imagine emerald, green, rainbow surrounding the throne. Just like Ezekiel's opening vision of the throne in Ezekiel 128. There's a throne. Brothers and sisters, where does a throne find its origin? Meaning, where did the throne begin? Or where did, where did I'm sorry, where did the rainbow begin? Where, where, where did the rainbow begin? Well, before you begin to answer, there were rainbows before the Noahic covenant. Just like there was death before Adam sinned. It's a part of the natural creative order. When, when light passes through something clear, water-like, it creates these brilliant colors from the sun. But God gives a new significance to the rainbow through the Noahic covenant. It becomes a sign of the covenant that is meant to be a sign of preserving mercy after God judges the world through the flood. God says to to Noah, when you look to the rainbow, then you will remember that I will be merciful and I will preserve creation so that the seed of the woman can be born. And now God, in this uh, vision of heaven, is communicating to John that that there is also a, a similar mercy that is going to be offered in the midst of judgment that is coming. There will be a mercy offered to all of those who are His. God is boundless in glory. God is boundless in mercy. He will judge the wicked and He will preserve the righteous. There's also a hint here of the new creation that we spoke about in our last sermon and that we hopefully will continue to speak about. God's judgment on the earth through the flood. You've heard this before. If you were in the Revelation or this Genesis series, you heard this. It was a type of recreation of creation. That God was recreating creation all over again. The precious stones with the rainbow are pointing to the eventual uh, consummation of the new creation. But the fact that the new creation has already been inaugurated is clear. But we are in the new creation. The precious stones in Revelation 18 and 21 are a part of the depiction of the new creation. And just as the rainbow is the first uh, revelatory sign of the new creation that emerged after the Noahic covenant, the new creation now that God is pointing to is saying that there is coming a judgment. There is coming a judgment. Now, remember, this is all on the heels of chapters 2 and 3. The church being opposed. God is saying there is coming a judgment. In the same way that sin was running rampant during the days of Noah until God brings a judgment, God is saying there is coming a judgment. But there will be mercy. But there will be mercy. And the the rainbow. Let's recover the rainbow. Don't don't look at the rainbow as if it's a, a, a negative thing. They are trying to take... All of these things that are ours 
and, and muddy them and, and pollute them. No, that is our, that is our symbol. It is a symbol of mercy. And they, they do well to carry that flag because God is still being merciful. God has not yet executed final judgment. So yet, yeah, wave that rainbow and remind yourself that God has not yet executed judgment, but you best repent and turn to Christ or you will experience grave danger and judgment. That's our symbol, though. Verse 4. Around the throne, there are 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting, look at your scriptures, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their head. There's a type of heavenly entourage, isn't there, surrounding the throne of God. This is difficult to interpret, but let's do our best. It's most likely that these elders are angels who are identified with the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. They are representing the entire community of both the redeemed, of the redeemed, I should say, of both the Old and the New Testament. They are representing the redeemed from the Old and the New Testament. In previous chapters, the Lord has promised to those who endure, to those who overcome, to those who hold fast, that they will be crowned, that they will wear white, that they will have a place to reign with Christ on His throne. And here we see these 24 representatives of that eternal fact. That the saints of old and the saints of the new, you and I, they represent our place there with the one who is sitting enthroned. The seven churches, for the entire church for all time, we are given a glimpse into heaven to see, again, saints of old, saints of new. Imagine, saints like Stephen, saints like Paul, saints like Antipas, who did not capitulate, who persevered, and they are now receiving their promised reward. We, like them, are encouraged to know that just as they persevered, if we too persevere, this will be our reward. When you're looking at that, don't say, wow, they are uniquely blessed. This is your promise. It's a promise for you. You see those dressed in white crowns, they are enthroned. It's a promise to you. This is your reward. And for the churches from chapters 2 and 3, if you do not compromise, this is what is laid up for you. But it's not done yet. It's to encourage the church, past, present, and future. Your real citizenship is with those saints who sit enthroned in heaven. You belong there. Your real home is not here. It's not with the unbeliever. You've been made a citizen of the new Jerusalem of God. And as we gather Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we are given a taste of our eternal home. We are reminded that we are pilgrims. We are marching together unto glory. As you're hearing these words now, I pray that you are saying, yes, my place is with them. Not here. I'm striving. I'm, I'm, I'm stressing. My body is changing. This is not my home. I belong there. I, I have a place seated with them. And then John's attention is drawn back to God, by God. God, God, if you will, grabs his face and says, now look at this. And it's back to the throne of God, where there are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder, a phrase that is going to be repeated verbatim in chapter 8, 11, and 16. And it's meant to communicate assurance for the church. God is a righteous judge. 
He has not, listen to this, He has not forgotten those who have persecuted His bride. Let's, men, let someone attempt to hurt your wife. You will not forget them, nor will you let them near. God is assuring His bride, the church, with the peals and the thunder of lightning and thunder, Oh, I have not forgotten. Uh, the, the wicked will not get away with what she is doing to my bride. There on the throne, before on the throne, is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is, is symbolized by tongues of what? Tongues of fire. And there before the throne, there are seven lamps that are burning with what? Fire which is meant to to communicate the seven spirits of God or the fullness of the Holy Spirit. That the lamps are burning with fire. That that, that there is the Holy One present on the throne. The one who is dwelling in brilliance of light is accompanied by by the third person, if you will, the Trinity, who is represented by fire. One represented by light. One represented by fire. And the other will be the Lamb who walks among the churches. John says, before the throne, if you can imagine this chasm, this space that is before the throne, John says, I I, I see something, and then the word again, I see something, look at your scriptures, like, I see something like what? A sea of glass. Something like a sea of glass. What what does John intend to communicate with this sea of glass? John will also... It's funny, John says, it's like a sea of glass, and John goes, it's like crystal. It's, it's almost as if John is not satisfied with saying, it. it's like glass. No, it's like crystal. Another uh, ver- version will say, it's like ice. I hope that you're, you're catching that. It's, it, again, it's, it's as if John is so overwhelmed. It's like this. Uh, now it's kind of like, like this. It's, now it's like this. Again, out of his depths. In the vision that Ezekiel receives, he too sees a sea before the throne of God. He also says it's like crystal, and he also says it's like it's like ice that forms the floor where the throne of God is set up. There's something to be noted about the sea. My wife has asked me a number of times, uh, let's go on a cruise. And... Uh, my response is always uh, over my dead body. I am uh, happy to go about 20 yards or 30 yards into the sea, but I will go no further into the sea. <laughs> I'm terrified of the open sea because the sea rages. And although I... On the shore, I feel like uh, like I am safe. I, it go, can go to my, my ankles and sometimes to my knees. When I am in the depths of the sea, I am but a, a, a mite in that vast ocean. That vast ocean that, that rages, that at any time can, can sweep over a cruise liner. If it did it to Titanic, to Titanic it, it could do it to any one of these other ships. And I don't want it to be on the one that it does it to. The sea of God, of glass, 
It's calm. It's not raging. It's not like what I would envision a sea to be. The peals and thunder and lightning, it's, it's coming from the throne, but not from the sea. When I think of the sea, I think of thunder. I think of lightning. I think of lightning striking the sea and the sea raging back and forth. That's happening from the throne, not from the sea that John sees. Because the sea, it's meant to be evil, meant to represent evil that has been calmed, calmed by the one who sits on the throne. It's meant to represent a sea or evil that's been calmed by the divine power of the sovereign God. Throughout the scriptures, the sea is most often meant to communicate chaos. Think about the times when you see sea mentioned. The Lord is out fishing on the sea and what happens? There's a great tempest that takes place out on the sea. When the earth was created, the earth was formless and void and darkness covered the depths of of the sea. It's meant to communicate chaos. Chaos in the waters. They are without form. They are void. Until God comes and brings order where there is disorder. Calm was brought about. Uh, One theologian says, by the cosmic D-Day, wherein the saints... Redemption from the devil was accomplished, but his final complete defeat awaits mopping up operations by the saints in Christ's final coming in judgment at the end of history. Later in chapter 21, John will see that the sea is no more. Later in, in Revelation 21, John will see the sea's not even here any longer. Not only has it been defeated, but by the consummation, it's completely eradicated. The sea is meant to represent evil. It's not only, it's not only calmed, it's completely removed. G.K. Beale says, in fact, the sea of glass, like crystal before the throne, may be in an intentional contrast, listen to this, with a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, listen to this, coming from the throne in Revelation chapter 21. Here's a, here's a, that little song, I, I've got a river of life flowing out of me. It makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Opens prison doors, sets the captives free. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Spring up a well. You know that song? Yeah. You're not old like me. But from the throne of God comes this river of life. And all who have been given the right come and drink of it and live. Beale says the sea as the source of satanic evil opposing God's throne has been eliminated and replaced with the river of redemption, which has its source in the throne. Finally, in terms of the vision of the throne, John sees four living creatures around the throne. Verse six. This is verse six. I won't read it. Verse six. These four creatures are also featured in the visions of Isaiah and Ezekiel. They are meant to represent the whole order of animate that is living life. They are meant to represent animate or living life. All things created that live by God. There's also another aspect of the symbolism. It indicates that it's, it's something more because there are eyes all over these creatures. And they are not only representing creation, but they are representing the creator. The multitude of eyes is, is to signify that, that God divinely knows all things. He is, he is omniscient. And these creatures are used by God. They are the, we sang a moment ago, seraphim and cherubim bowing down. These four creatures are the seraphim and cherubim of God. 
They are used by God. They are agents sent forth to do the will of their master. He sees all. And through these creatures, he commissions them to do his bidding. They are a part of his royal entourage. They inaugurate the judgments that come upon the wicked until the final consummation. Again, the church, the church should know evil will be calmed, just like the sea. God uses these creatures, these seraphim and cherubim, he uses them to execute his plans. Some, I hope not, but you may be slightly confused at this point. Are, are these literal or are they symbolic? They are symbolic. They are symbolic. Meant to symbolize God holds all creation in his hand. Meant to symbolize that, that he executes judgment on the wicked and the righteous will, vi- will be vindicated. Uh, meant to symbolize that God does have cherubim, does have seraphim, and they are created to serve him and to execute his commands. For the church, it's meant to symbolize that darkness, the darkness that seems to sometimes close in around us, the throne that seems of Satan that seems to loom over us, whether you be in this country or any other country. The darkness that seems to dispel all light. That there is one who sits upon the throne of thrones, that there is a light that dispels all darkness and that there is a promise for all of those who endure and trust in the one who sits upon that throne. What should our response be? Gosh. The third and final point, worship in heaven. If you would, saints, I'd like to read this, and then I'm going to read Psalm 148, and we'll close. This will be a very, very short point. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is to come. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord, our, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created. Are these not beautiful verses? It's what Pastor Isaiah did this morning when he read from the book of Isaiah. What did he do? He did what the four living creatures did. He called us to worship. And our response in liturgy is to bow our hearts before God and to sing, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. To sing, Be Thou My Vision. Uh, To sing, Behold our God. And to sing, all I have is Christ. These beautiful verses, they see the purpose of God's creation. It's to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. Again, it's what what God is saying to the church who is being opposed. 
There is a greater joy available to you if you endure. If you do not capitulate, if you do not compromise, there is greater joy available to you. Here's a picture of it. What's the chief aim of man? All of you catechism children. Chief aim of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. The four living creatures are performing, not just performance, but as a function purpose of their existence to glorify God and to enjoy him forever the 24 elders representing saints of old and new they are uh, performing they, they are are they are doing they are acting in the very reason that they have been existed to glorify God and to enjoy him forever the purpose of your redemption what is it to glorify God and to enjoy him forever you're being a faithful witness in your job and in your home and in your church. What's the purpose of it? It's because you do glorify God and you do enjoy Him. All creation, all of the redeemed, there is a promise laid up for us that we will enjoy, listen to this, ceaseless, never-ending worship to God. Never-ending worship to God. And and we might say, am I going to enjoy that? Am I going to like that? It will be your highest joy. I pray it's your highest joy now. I pray that you don't... Okay, when I get there, then I'll really like it. You will really like it because all sin will be removed. Evil will be eradicated. There won't be this this, uh, uh, church militant anymore. We will be church triumphant. They declare the Lord God, the Almighty that is and who was and who is to come. It transcends. God transcends, I should say, not it. God transcends all time. And to the suffering believer, be encouraged of this. In the same way that Christ ascended into the clouds, he will also once again descend from the clouds and make all things new. Worship is due to him alone, isn't it? Honor is due to Him alone. Who's at the center of heaven? God is at the center of heaven. Who's the focal point, therefore, of heaven? God is the focal point of heaven. So when we come to worship, what should be the focal point of our worship? Christ, our triune God, should be the focal point of our worship. Not what we like. And not what we, we... I wish they would do this in church. Christ is the focal point of heaven. If you're attending a church where Christ is exalted, the sacraments are being presented in order to honor and worship God, then you are in a church that most reflects what is done in heaven. The will in heaven done on earth, we can say amen, and so it is. We never tune our liking, our worship to our liking. We tune our worship not even to, we don't tune our worship to the the seeker. We tune our worship to the one who sits upon the throne, who lives forever and ever. Worthiness, or worship is worthiness. All heaven, all creation, all the redeemed, give to what, what belongs to God alone. Worthiness, worship, belongs to Him alone. Psalm 96.4, Great is the Lord and worthy to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. Let, let's read this in closing. Psalm 148. 
Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all the angels. Praise Him, all the hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all stars of light. Praise Him, highest heavens. All the waters that are above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord. For He commanded and they were created. He has also established them and forever, forever and ever. He has made a decree which will not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth. Sea monsters and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and cloud, stormy wind, fulfilling His word, mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all cattle, creeping things and winged fowl, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, both young men and virgins, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for the name of the Lord is exalted. His glory is above all earth and heaven, and He has lifted up a horn for His people. Praise for all his godly ones, even for the sons of Israel, a people near to him, praise the Lord. What more can we say? Praise the Lord. Let us this morning join our voices with the voices of heaven, the saints around the throne, the cherubim and seraphim who sing of His holiness. We don't need to wait to get there to join them in their worship. We do it now. Let's stand.